Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Uh, hi everyone, um, I'm Al. I think I know many of you. This is my wife Tanya and our son Rupert. We come here. And uh, yeah, like I said, I think I know many of you. I even like a few of you. Um, but for those I've not said hello to before, hi, I'm Al. Um, for the past two months, if you've been around, we have been reading and discussing various stories in the Bible where all different kinds of people have had their answers to their questions and longings. Um, they found the answers to their questions and their longings when they encountered Jesus. We've actually cleverly entitled the series Encounters with Jesus. Um, we smile like that. And I think it's fair to say that there are some um, yearnings and longings that we all have, some that are universal. We all long for acceptance. We all long for meaning. We all long for forgiveness. We all long for a purpose in life. And that's the reason that we have been looking at these stories, because we find in them various people who have the same kind of longings that we do today and have found the answers to those questions and longings when they, when they met Jesus. In today's talk, I'm going to be talking about handling grief and despair, which seems like a happy subject for a bank holiday, so sorry about that. But actually, given what's happened this week, maybe it's not a bad subject to be covering. But that said, I hope that you won't leave here feeling depressed. I actually hope that you'll leave feeling full of hope and confidence. In fact, the title of today's uh, talk is A Hope That Overcomes Death. So it may start bad, but it's going to get better. Um, the sermon is based on the passage that Loz just read. Thank you very much, Loz, wherever you are. That's John 20, verses 1 to 8. And it follows the story of Mary Magdalene on what's probably the most momentous day of her life. We see that she goes on quite a journey. She goes from despair to hope to finding a purpose in life. And I'd say that her journey and her story is an example for all of us who follow Jesus or any of us who are on what you might call a journey of faith who are exploring things today. In fact, Tim Keller, who's a um, pastor from New York and quite a prolific writer who I'll be referring to many times, or I'll be basically stealing stuff from him many times today, he calls Mary the first Christian, which is quite, quite an accolade. But when we first meet Mary in the passage, she doesn't really look like that. She's frantic, she's fearful, and she is despairing. She, um, she is so consumed by grief that she seems to have lost all perspective of what's going on around her. The, uh, it says that she is weeping, which is quite a strong word. If anyone is weeping, something pretty serious has happened. But actually, some commentators say that that word weeping should be translated as wailing. She is a woman who is absolutely distraught. She is so kind of engrossed in her grief that she totally misses the angels. She's kind of oblivious to them. It refers to there being angels in the tomb. She doesn't even kind of register that they're there. And she totally misses Jesus. She, as we read, she thinks he's the gardener. She's just totally out of it, as it were. Any time in the Bible that someone meets an angel, take, for example, the shepherds at Bethlehem on the night Jesus was born, they're terrified, they're scared, Mary is so stuck in her moment of grief that she barely even notices, notices them. In fact, given that she thinks that Jesus is the gardener, maybe she thinks they're like cavemen or, I don't know, uh, miners or something. But anyway, don't think I'm being too harsh on, on Mary. I'm not. I'm really not. She's, she's a lovely lady, uh, which, which we'll get to in a bit. But she, Mary is a woman who is mourning. She, the man who has turned her life around 
who has been her close friend, who she's followed closely for the last couple of years, is now dead. And to add insult to injury, his body has now been taken. You could say that actually she has every right to be wailing or weeping. It kind of only makes sense. But actually it's interesting that both the angels and Jesus, their response to her, they both try to encourage her or coax her out of this kind of all-encompassing grief. They both ask her the same question. They both say, why are you weeping? Now the theologian D.A. Carson says that this is not a question designed to elicit information. They don't really want her to answer. Actually, Carson goes on to say that this is a gentle rebuke because at this point, Mary shouldn't be crying. Why shouldn't she be crying? Well, because the tomb is open and Jesus is alive, but um, we'll get to that a bit later. That's the punchline. Um, sorry. I think, though, that Mary's, Mary's behavior and Jesus' response to her tells us a lot about how we, as Christians, can, can and should uh, respond to grief and to the, to the death of, of loved ones. And I don't think the answer from the passage is that we need to be stoic, we need to suck it in and, and, and not to grieve. Christians, and this is going to be a bit of a bombshell for you, Christians are just like everyone else. When, when the people that we love die, we will feel sorrow, we will feel pain, we will feel loss. It's going to happen. My wife, uh, Tanya, was brought up by her grandparents, not her parents. That's us at our wedding, that's Tanya's grand. Um, and her granddad died when she was about 11, and so she spent her teens and her early 20s with her grand. And in the last year before we got married, her grand got very sick, and she deteriorated very quickly. And she, yeah, three months after we got married, she died, and praise God, she made it to the wedding. She was very ill, and we weren't sure that she was going to make it. And here she is. How have we aged, by the way? I feel a bit bigger here, a bit hairier here. Maybe a bit more here, I don't know. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, yeah, so she, she made it to the wedding, but she died shortly thereafter. And that, that was not supposed to happen. We wanted her to see our children. We wanted her to be a great-grandmother. And it, it just it didn't happen. She died, and there was pain and sorrow. And then how about my grandparents? I wasn't raised by my grandparents, but I loved, I loved them dearly. This is a picture of them on their 60th wedding anniversary. They, they both died in 2015, within a few months of each other, just shy of their 65th wedding anniversary. Um, I should have said that Tanya and I are going to celebrate 10 years of marriage this year, but that is nothing compared to them, 65. Um, and yeah, um, my gran actually died the same day that our son was born. That was a weird day. Rupert was born at like 1 a.m., and she died, it must have been like 11 a.m. or about noon. And my dad was at the hospital, and he tells me that the last, her last kind of living memory was him telling her that she was a great-grandmother for the fourth time and that her great-grandson was called Rupert, That's her, which is a beautiful thought, but also a really tragic thought. And I think that, you know, those are some personal stories from Tanya and I, but I, I, I imagine if we went around the room, we could all, sh well, many of us could maybe share similar stories. And we won't do that because we really would get depressed, but um, we could do. But I also wanted to share with you the story of a kind of much more well-known or almost famous Christian. And that's a guy called C.S. Lewis, who I'm sure many of you will know. We've, we've cited his work hundreds of times at Christchurch. In fact, pretty much every sermon has a C.S. Lewis quote in it. And um, he, 
He wrote, his wife passed away from cancer and he wrote a book about it called Grief. It's actually, uh, obviously it's a very sad story, but he got married late in life. He fell in love, fell head over heels in love with this woman. And then they were only together for a couple of years and then she died. And he then wrote this book called A Grief Observed. And I would imagine it, was, it didn't make the bestsellers list. <laughs> Most of his other work probably did, but this one is actually quite disturbing. It's quite unsettling when you read it. He really doesn't hold any punches. He really asks the toughest of questions. He's like, is there a God? Is there really a God? I mean, coming from C.S. Lewis, that's quite a question. And then he's saying, if there is a God, and he seems to, he seems to kind of reluctantly admit that there is one, if there really is a God, is he good? What kind of God is he? Is he good? And if he is good, then how on earth could he let my wife die? That these are the kind of questions. I, I actually wanted to read you a quote from the book, but um, read it on your own time. I'm not going to do that today. It's a little bit depressing. Now, Lewis's questions, though, are similar. I would say that at some point in our lives, we will probably all be asking questions like that. You see, we live in a world that is broken, and death is a symptom of that brokenness. I mean, don't you long for a world where there is no death? And as Christians, we have zero immunity from death. Sorry, it's getting quite strong, isn't it? Quite deep. We have no immunity from death. Our loved ones will die. We will die. Okay, pause, take that in. <laughs> I hope I haven't depressed you too much. But let me ask you this question. What difference, if any, does it make, therefore, for us to know Jesus? Well, it's Tanya and my experience from the story that we shared. And much more importantly, it's, it's Mary's experience in the passages that we're reading that because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can have hope and we can have confidence in the darkest of moments, even in death. We read this in, in 1 Thessalonians uh, verse 4, chapter 13. It says, But we do not want you to be inf uh, uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We are, so we are those who have hope. We grieve, yeah, but we grieve with hope. In the past uh, couple of months, I've watched two BBC documentaries that have really touched on this topic of grieving, and they've been very emotional. In fact, one of them, um, I felt like sweat coming from my tear ducts. It was quite a hot day, and uh, I, I blubbed like a baby on one of them. But the, f the first one was about Rio Ferdinand. I don't know if you know Rio Ferdinand, very well-known guy. Um, England footballer, uh, only recently retired from football. And it's his wife... Um, tragically died, she died from cancer and they have three kids and it's a story about him kind of coming to terms with his grief or trying to and then trying to raise their children and trying to help their children kind of face up to, to grief and loss and it's, it's very moving and very sad. And then there was another one um, called Mind Over Marathon, I don't know if you saw this program, um, but it was about a number of people who have various mental health issues of, of all different kinds who come together to train and ultimately run the London Marathon as a way of sort of facing their fears head on. It's quite moving and, and, and in there we meet a lady, uh, this lady, who, whose name is Rianne or something I think, um, a Welsh lady and really sad story. She, her son, she has a healthy boy, one years old, all of a sudden out of the blue he got pneumonia and died just, just like that. And then her husband was so cut up by the death of her son that he took his life. So within five days, she lost her son and her husband. And it's, it's just a totally tragic story. And in both cases, their losses just seem so big and their grief so enormous. But then I think there must be countless people across London who are maybe going through a similar thing right now and there's, where there's no BBC documentary being made. 
And maybe there are even some people in this room who've recently lost a loved one or who are going through a similar thing. And in such situations then, isn't it amazing news to know that we can feel hope instead of despair? But what is this hope I'm talking about and what is the basis for it? You could say thus far I've been a little light on details. And that's true, but I will give, I'll give you some more details. The basis for our faith rests solely on the resurrection of Jesus. That is what our confidence is in. It's that act that changed Mary, Mary's life forever. It's that act that changed my life and anyone who calls himself a Christian. Now, I will talk more about the resurrection in just a moment. I'll talk about evidence for it, the basis for it. So if you think I'm skimming on it, I will get back to it. But I just want to briefly say a few more things about Mary. First of all, just to know that she was caught totally off guard by the resurrection. She did not see it coming. She had no mental concept or had no expectation whatsoever that Jesus was going to raise back to life. Well, you could say that's fair enough. Who would expect such a thing? Well, actually, Tim Keller says that the disciples and Mary probably should have seen it coming because he said, Jesus said many times, I will die and I will be raised. I will die and I will come back to life. And they didn't listen. In fact, he says that they should have been camped outside the tomb waiting for it to be broken open. Uh, They weren't. And actually, Mary's first thought was that they were grave robbers, which apparently was a thing at that time. Such was Mary's state of mind and her lack of comprehension about what was going on that she was actually looking for a dead Jesus. She was looking for a corpse that she could embalm. She wasn't looking for an alive or risen Jesus. This is how uh, theologian Ben Witherington uh, put it. He says, By including the question, whom are you looking for? So Jesus says, why are you weeping and who are you looking for? Jesus is implying that Mary's focus should be on someone, not on something, i.e. a corpse. She wants to know where it is. And Jesus responds by talking about a living person. Mary's thoughts are so riveted on the past and on the body that she makes the colossal mistake and the ironic error of mistaking Jesus for the gardener who may have moved the body. Her lack of spiritual perspective at this point could hardly be made clearer. But it's when she meets the risen Jesus, though, that everything changes, not least her heart. So that was a section called despair. We can move on from despair now and we can be happy. I'm going to talk about hope. So we see that in the first half of the passage, Mary is consumed by her grief. She is totally lost in it. And she goes from a woman overwhelmed by grief to a woman overwhelmed by joy. And it's interesting to note, to note, though, what made the difference, how that change occurred. It wasn't through, through, looking at the, through seeing the empty tomb, as dramatic as that must have been. It wasn't through the presence of the angels, which usually would, well, always would imply the activity of God. It wasn't that. It wasn't even seeing Jesus himself, because she mistakes him for the, for the gardener. It, what, so what was it then that, that made the difference? It was personal interaction with Jesus and hearing her voice. That's what broke into her bubble and changed her life. We read this in verses 14 to 16. Uh, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Tim Keller describes what, kind of what just happened in that passage in the following way. He says, The graciousness of Jesus is palpable. Mary is running around frantically, 
But as he hints by asking her, who are you looking for? She's looking for the wrong Jesus, for a dead Jesus, for a Jesus infinitely less great than he really is. She never would have found him unless he sought her. He comes to her, gently works to open her heart, and then he breaks through with a personal address. You know, earlier in John's Gospel, chapter 10, so 10 chapters earlier, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, which is like a metaphor for how he cares for and tends to his people. And in that passage, in verses 3 and 4, it says the following. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. It's in this being called that Jesus is affirming or reaffirming his love and his care for Mary. And that, that same personal relationship that, that Mary has with Jesus is available to all of us today. And it is the one thing that can make the difference to us in the toughest times. It can give us the hope and the confidence that we need when, we, when we're facing things like death and despair. So this confidence that I'm speaking about, it does not rest, though, in knowing the Jesus that you might think I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the Jesus who's nice to old ladies and kind to children, although he is those things. I'm talking about the Jesus where it says in the Bible, because of whom it says, O death, where is your sting? And because of whom it also says that death is swallowed up in victory. I'm talking about the risen Jesus. Now Mary's story, and really the whole Christian faith, only makes sense if the resurrection really happened and if what I'm talking about tonight is true. But aren't we maybe a little crazy to think that such a thing could happen? The Apostle Paul, who is, um, I guess you might call him a founding father of the church, or a, uh, that's perhaps a good description, says that effectively either we've got it right on the resurrection or we're a joke, we're a laughingstock. He doesn't say, those are my words, that's me paraphrasing him. But that's basically what he says. This is how he says it though, it's much more eloquent in 1 Corinthians. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God and he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So everything hinges on this. Did it happen? Did it not happen? I don't have um, time today to kind of give a fully comprehensive, um, totally all-encompassing co analysis of the, the cases for and against the resurrection. And to be honest, I'm probably not the best qualified to do so. But I won't leave it there. I will definitely make some comments about the evidence for the resurrection. I just want you to know it won't be the, the uh, be-all and end-all. As an aside, though, if this is a topic that you'd like to of explore more and certainly it's a, an important one if I've just said our whole faith hinges on it and there's two books I'd, I'd recommend reading or at least exploring and they're written by two men who at separate times have um, set out to disprove the resurrection have set out to say there's no way that could have ever happened and both of them have been overwhelmed by evidence to the contrary and both of them have ended up writing books about it so the first one is uh, on the left uh, who moved the stone a book by uh, frank morrison and the second one is um 
The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Interestingly, Lee Strobel is, is or was a lawyer. So when he's talking about the case for Christ, he's approaching it like a lawyer and building a case for the resurrection or not. And I'd like to read you a quick quote from Strobel's book. He says, I admit it, I was ambushed by the amount and the quality of the evidence that Jesus is the unique Son of God. As I sat at my desk that Sunday afternoon, I shook my head in amazement. I had seen defendants carted off to the death chamber on much less convincing proof. In the face of this overwhelming avalanche of evidence in the case for Christ, the great irony was this. It would require much more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to trust Jesus of Nazareth. Now, as I said, there's, there's so much more that could be said on this topic than I really am able to do today. But I do want to make a few short comments about kind of the evidence for the resurrection. Firstly, um, in all four gospel accounts, so I've been reading today from John's gospel, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well, in all four gospel accounts, the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection are women. Now, why is that important? Well, both uh, historians and Bible scholars both say that in Jewish and Roman courts at that time, a woman was not allowed to testify. In that kind of patriarchal society, a woman's evidence was seen as inadmissible and, and a woman was seen as an unreliable witness. Um, so basically, if you were trying to fabricate the story, why on earth would you include women? Again, here's, here's Tim Keller, who's going to put it in a much more eloquent way than I just did. He says, if you were fabricating an account of the resurrection in order to promote your religious movement, you would never, at that time, at that time make a woman the first eyewitness. The only historically plausible answer to why women are in the account at all, why the men who wrote these accounts would put women in when their testimony was considered unreliable, is because it must have happened. Mary must have been there. She must have seen Jesus. There's no other motive or reason for the author to say she was. So that, that's the first thing. A second thing to say is that the Jewish authorities never produced the body. So if you flip over, so we're reading John chapter 20. If you flip over a few pages into the book of Acts, you read that the church, the early church, is kind of experiencing explosive growth. Many people are coming to faith at a, a rapid rate. Well, if the Jewish authorities could have produced the body and said, this is Jesus, he's dead. What are you guys doing? That might have kind of put a stop to things. That didn't happen. A third thing to say is that there are many, or there are multiple, I should say, accounts in the, in the Gospels and in other parts of the New Testament where they record people having seen Jesus subsequent to his resurrection. So resurrection appearances they could be described as. And in fact, one of those, um, on one occasion, there's a reference to him having been present with 500 people at one time. So 500 people saw him at one time. There are other examples too. And the fourth thing, and I think this one is kind of, for me, the most, well, I think they're all good, but I like this one the most. It's, uh, the fourth one is, if you just look at the changed behavior of the disciples, look at Peter. Peter was this hothead guy who, when push came to shove, denied Jesus. He denied him three times. But then, again, you read a little later, and he is like this bold apostle. He's an evangelist. He's, he's fearless, almost, as you read later on. How did that happen? Then if you look at the Apostle Paul that I've spoken about, who was not part of the original group, but he who encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, his life was totally changed. He, he was a guy who was persecuting Christians. He was having them killed. He was trying to shut the Christianity thing down. And who ends up being one of the, 
biggest advances of the Christian faith. Why? Because he met Jesus. And how about Mary? I mean, I, I hope that I've tried to explain something about how Mary's outlook and view has changed, how she has gone from this woman despairing to a woman of, of boldness. I'm going to speak a bit more about her in a minute. Now, you might think then at this point that I'm basically going to wrap up. We're, uh, Jesus is alive, woo Mary's happy, you know, we're done, job done. Well, not quite, almost there, hang in there. Um, I said at the beginning that Tim Keller describes Mary as the first Christian, which as I said is quite an, an accolade. And that he describes her thus because she is the first person to believe that Jesus died, that he was raised to life, and then to have a personal encounter with Jesus, and then to be commissioned by him to be sent out to do his work. And now that last step is really important. We, we actually read, though, that Jesus, he rebukes Mary in the passage. So after the, their kind of big embrace and encounter, he actually tells her to stop clinging to him. As we read in verse 17, he says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet, I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now it doesn't make it clear in the text, but some commentators suggest that she's literally kind of grabbed hold of Jesus, like round his ankles or something, and she won't let go. <laughs> she's like, he's alive, I'm not letting go. Um, so Jesus' rebuke of her seems a little strange, especially if you just read a few verses ahead in the same, in the same chapter, and we meet Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, who doesn't believe that Jesus was raised. And his response to Thomas is, touch me, feel, put your hands in my wounds and see. So why is he saying to her, don't cling to me? Isn't it a little harsh? Well, the reason he talks to Mary in this way is because Mary doesn't understand what's happening. She thinks that the relationship is going to continue on exactly the same footing. She calls him Rabboni or teacher, which is exactly what she called him before. So she thinks we're just going back to things the way they were. But Jesus is not interested in maintaining the relationship on the same footing because he is risen and he is about to ascend to the Father. D.A. Carson, the theologian I referred to earlier, he says that grand as Mary's devotion was to Jesus, her estimate of him was far too small. But even in this moment, in this moment of rebuke, Jesus is not harsh with Mary. In fact, he gives Mary a, a mission or a, a purpose in this way. As theologian Rodney Whittaker describes, he says, Jesus says he is still on the move and also sets Mary in motion to bear the news to the disciples. She has just found him and now she is sent away, but she is sent away with a commission. As the ancient church put it, she becomes an apostle to the apostles. The message she gives says a great deal about the new phase that has begun in the relations between the Father, the Son, and the disciples. And this is the message that she brought. Verse 17 and 18. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And he, said, and he said these things to her. So this was the first time that Jesus has called the disciples his brothers. And it illustrates the change in relationship that we have with God that's been made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I.e., we can now become children of God. 
And it was Mary's honor to deliver that message. You know, one last thing to say about Mary. She has the honor of being called the first Christian. Well, that's not an official title in the Bible, but that, that she has that, that, that experience, if you want to call it that. She's also the apostle to the apostles, or described in that way. She has this unique privilege of delivering this message. Now, if you knew anything about Mary, though, you might think her an unlikely candidate for such a privilege. We read in Luke's Gospel that seven demons were cast out of her. It doesn't go into much more detail, but suggests that she has something of a checkered past. It suggests that she has some skeletons in her closet. suggests that she has some regrets, some things that she's not so proud of. And even so, Jesus chooses her for this. She is the first person to see the risen Jesus as she has this checkered past. Now, you know, Jesus chooses broken people. That's kind of, that's how he works. That's what he did then, and that's what he does today. So I hope that encourages you. Maybe I could actually ask for the band to come back. Um, so I hope that I've, what I've tried to convey today is that Mary's been on quite a journey on an emotional journey, on a spiritual journey. And having heard about her journey, maybe it's time for you to think about some next steps in your journey. Maybe you want to consider becoming a Christian. Maybe you want to explore further what that means. Um, Lord spoke about, or Sarah, one of them spoke about the Alpha course that's coming, coming up soon, starting next Wednesday in Limehouse. That's just an open forum to discuss whatever questions you have and to talk about the most important questions around Christianity. Maybe to even ask some of those C.S. Lewis type questions. Is there really a God? Is he a good God? Maybe that's something you want to think about. Maybe you also want to... Um, I've talked about the journey from despair to hope that Mary went on. Maybe that's something that, a journey that you want to take. What I mean by that is maybe there are some people here tonight who are feeling like they're going through loss or grief or hardship. and They want to know the comfort of God. They want to know the hope that he brings. Maybe there's, that's a journey for you to go on. Maybe there are some of you who want to go from hope to purpose. So if you remember, it doesn't just end with Jesus being alive. Actually, Jesus then commissions Mary and sends her out. Maybe there are some of you who... Well, maybe it's time for you to do the things that God is calling you to. Or maybe it's time to ask God, what are the things that you have for me to do? Maybe it's time for you to go on that journey too. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.